I hope everybody had a good, happy Thanksgiving. And for those friends and family that might be in town visiting, uh, welcome. Your family have invited you to a church service to hear about money. So uh, you can thank them uh, a little bit later. And obviously a little bit more than that too, about Jesus as well. Well, two weeks ago, as I was getting ready to go uh, to church, I got a phone alert. Um, It wouldn't be what I would call like a major world event, but my phone, without knowing it, actually gave me an alert that I was pretty interested to hear about. Um, A major college football program had decided to fire its head coach that morning. Um, And as a result, they were going to be paying a very large sum of money that was guaranteed on his contract, um, even though he was not going to be coaching the team. It was in fact $77 million that they were gonna be paying him not to coach the team anymore. Some of you may know about this story. Now, if you aren't a college football fan, maybe even if you are, you might think, is that a normal amount of money? That feels like a lot of money for him not to coach anymore. Uh, The answer is, no, that's not, that's the largest one that, that anybody has had to pay. Some of you are probably thinking with that, like, gosh, what is going on with the educational institutions in this country? Others of you are thinking, how do I get into college football coaching? Um, that sounds like a pretty good deal. Well, uh, this news alert uh, led to a little bit of a conversation uh, with one of my kids on the way to church. And the question that we talked about a little bit was, if you had $77 million and you didn't have to work, what would you do with your life? fun little thought exercise. And we talked about a lot of extravagant things that we might do and ways that we would, of course, uh, give the money away and help other people, but also, you know, do some fun things for ourselves. And uh, at at the end, at one point, maybe maybe this is not an exact quote, but something along these lines, uh, my child said, um, I think I would want to travel the world and stay in nice hotels. And, uh, and that, that does sound like a pretty fun thing. I, I, I don't know, uh, I, asked, uh, I asked kind of what makes you that sound like the good life? I, I wondered if the hotels part was mostly because this person didn't wanna uh, clean up after themselves anymore. Maybe that was it. Um, but, uh, but you know, what makes that sound like the good life? Well, uh, after that conversation, I've been thinking about this for the last couple of weeks. I've been thinking about a little bit what would I do if I were, uh, I had a buyout? And this came up in the last service. One of the, the, the people on stage asked if we had a pastoral buyout program. Uh, and and uh, I don't think, I, I don't have that. So uh, if we do, it's not for me. Uh, but anyway, we, I, I daydreamed about what I might do with, with that money. I, I, I've even sympathized with the coach who, as much as that's a lot of money for him, I would, much, I would think he would much rather have his job and, and be successful than have a lot of money and, and go through what he's been through. Um, but mostly what stuck with me is this question of what is the good life? And is my, what is my life pointing to as my answer to that question? It doesn't take a sudden windfall of money to need to ask that question, what is the good life? And whether, in fact, I think whether you've named it or not, whether you could answer that question this morning, we are all heading in a trajectory that gives an answer to that question. Last Sunday and this Sunday, we're taking a two-week series to talk about um, a story of an encounter with Jesus, that there is a man in Mark chapter 10 um, who encounters Jesus. He's identified uh, in in three of the four gospels, and and he's called as, we don't know his name, but we, we know how he's described, that he's a rich 
young man in a position of authority and influence. He's the kind of person that you might say is already living out the good life, or if, if he's not, he's at least on the fast track towards it. And yet he's come to Jesus with a question and he's a longing for something more. If you, if you didn't hear Petey's message last week, I would highly encourage you to go back and hear the first part of Mark 10, uh, verses 17 to 22 that we're not really gonna hit on today, but, but kind of lay the groundwork to what we're gonna talk about. Uh, but we read last week that Jesus, in hearing this man's story and his longing for something more, uh, he, he asked him at the end of their conversation to sell all his possessions and give it away to the poor. And this man responds to that that command of Jesus. And we read this, the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And that might've been the whole story. That might've been where we left things and, and all that was there. A young man who seemingly had everything, but who still found himself searching for more, unwilling to release his grip on his money in order to receive more from Jesus but this story has a little bit more to it. And so today we're gonna look at part two of this story um, that is is centered around the disciples. So if you have a Bible, um, we're gonna be in Mark chapter 10, verse 23. Um, This is on page 1441 of your pew Bibles. If you wanna take a look um, and just keep a finger there because we'll kind of turn back to it a little bit. This is Mark 10, 23 to 31. Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me. And the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So the disciples probably had breathed a sigh of relief as this man walked away, thinking that was the end of today's lesson, that it was really just about this young man, and that Jesus maybe didn't have anything to say to them because, well, they weren't rich like he was. And so therefore, that was probably the end of the conversation. They were wrong. Writer Barbara Brown Taylor said this about this passage. It seems to me that Christians mangle this story in at least two ways. First, by acting as if it were not about money. And second, by acting as if it were only about money. And if I can be so bold as to add a third way, you might be tempted to think that Jesus' words here um, about money don't apply to you because you don't have enough zeros or commas in your bank account. Well, this is a word, regardless of how much or how little you have in your wallet, that applies to all of us. This is a story about what's central in our lives, and we all have something. How we pursue, how we spend, how we worry about, how we save, how we give, how we view money is a good window into what we think is the good life. 
What are we investing our lives to get and to keep? What are we trying to protect and insulate ourselves from happening? What really matters to us? I hope you'll see with me some some ideas about what Jesus' vision of the good life is and how we might cultivate that for ourselves. Well, maybe the first thing to see in this passage is that the disciples have an expression uh, in two different little little segments. Their expression is described as that they are amazed. A very interesting thing to do when you read the gospels is to see what are the things that Jesus is amazed by and what are the things that the people around Jesus are amazed by. You might think that these disciples who go around following Jesus doing teaching, that they would reserve their amazement for things like, I don't know, raising the dead or healing somebody who's blind or uh, feeding 5,000. That's the stuff that would truly amaze these disciples. But in this moment, they're amazed that Jesus would state and reiterate that it is difficult for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, their their jaws are probably dropped on the floor at that statement because like probably our culture today, in their culture, there was just this assumption and belief that material wealth was a sign of divine blessing. That it was this common belief in, in, in Jesus' day that if you lived a good life, then God would reward you with prosperity. And on the flip side, if you were poor, then that must mean that you were doing something wrong and that God was withholding his blessing on you because you, you, weren't, you weren't doing something right. It was just assumed that the good life meant that you were materially rich. So the idea Jesus states here is, is pretty much flipping their worldview upside down. But it's not just those in Jesus' day who struggle with that, right? It's, it's us too. As people have uh, studied this passage for the past 2,000 years, it's uh, probably as you read it today, you go, oh, it's going to be one of those Sundays. Um, that's a tough one. That's a really hard saying. And as people have read this and studied this over the last 2,000 years, they have tried to figure out what is Jesus saying? What does this really mean? How do I interpret this? And there's been a number of ways that I think people have tried to interpret it to kind of soften the blow. Well, Jesus couldn't have meant what it sounds like he means. Maybe you've heard, uh, heard somebody talk about this before. And what they've said is that in Jerusalem at the time, there was a gate or a door that, uh, that was very small, but it was a way of you could, uh, a camel could, if you took its packs off, it could crawl through this gate as a, and that was, the gate was called the eye of the needle. And so this was really what Jesus was referring to. The only problem with that, it has no basis in reality um, and didn't exist at that time. It was something that people along the way have said, well, that must be an explanation for what Jesus was trying to say. Other people have tried to say, well, the Greek word for camel sounds a lot like the Greek word for rope or cable. And so Jesus is really saying like, if you try, it's difficult, but you can thread a rope of a certain size through the eye of a needle. And that must be what Jesus is trying to, to say in this passage. Human beings have looked for alternate interpretations of these verses because we struggle with the idea of giving up our idea of the good life that revolves around what we have, around our stuff, around our wealth. We wanna find a way to keep one hand on God and one hand on everything that we have. Maybe you've heard a pastor in the past say this or you've, you've seen this illustration. Um, you don't see hearses towing U-Hauls around, do you? 
And it's a way, it's a funny illustration of saying, hey, whatever you accumulate in this world, uh, you don't get to take it with you after this life. We all know that that's kind of humorous and funny and maybe uh, illogical. And yet for, for so many of us, how much, and I'm including myself here, how much of our lives is built up around accumulating and building up what we have? So what version of the good life does Jesus want us to get instead? Here's what Pastor Tim Keller says about these verses. He says, Jesus didn't mean that it's a sin to be rich. It's important to say. It's not that all individual rich people are bad. It's not that all individual poor people are good. Jesus did not make such blanket assertions. Nor on the other hand, was he saying, just be careful, don't fall into greed. Be generous from time to time. No, Jesus was saying that there is something radically wrong with all of us. But money has a particular, a particular power to blind us to it. In fact, it has so much power to deceive us of our true spiritual state that we need a gracious, miraculous intervention from God to see it. It's impossible without God, without a miracle, without grace. That the good life that Jesus is here pointing us to is one where God alone is at the center of our lives. The human heart always believes, always wants to try to justify, is always gonna make the case, you know what? You're the person. You can hold, you can have two masters. You can serve those two masters. You can have one hand on God and one hand on all your stuff. But Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. Jesus uses this hyperbolic illustration about a camel and an eye of a needle, not to, because we don't need just a tweak of our understanding of money. To get the good life, we need a radical reorientation that puts Jesus alone in the center. And as I was thinking about this uh, uh, this week, I, I realized I needed some work on my own heart about diagnosing when something else gets to center, and even about some of the practices that I wanted to cultivate in my own heart. And so we're, that's what we're gonna spend the last few minutes. We got three things that we're gonna look at here. What are the ways that we can diagnose when something else is at the center? And what are some practices that can help us cultivate that in our life? First, locate your treasure. Uh, maybe some of you use this feature uh, on, on your iPhone. If you have an iPhone, Android, I'm sure has something similar. I'm just not familiar. Uh, but uh, find my friends. Anybody uh, maybe has already looked at it this morning. I, I, I've already looked at, where's my family this morning? Have they left the house? Um, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's a way to see and share the location of where you are and where others in your, your kind of orbit are. Um, if you've got kids who start driving, I would guess that it's really important because they don't always like to tell you when they get places. Um, but I've even heard from a few people here on staff that, that young adults will even share this with just your friends, that you'll be able to see where your friends are at any given point. And I've never felt so old as in that moment. And I'm going, I would never do that. Why would I just want my friends to know where I am? No, um, not going to do that. Uh, but but it's, it, it's kind of a popular thing. And uh, it gives you this sense. I know as a parent, it gives me this sense well, there's some security. I know my kid is at school right now. I can see their little dot on the map. I know where they are. Um, I can see my parents. They're at home right now, a thousand miles away. Um, you know where people are. But seeing that dot on the map isn't the same thing as actually knowing that they're safe. And it actually doesn't provide any sort of protection really, does it? I mean, I, it's helpful to know where they are, but it doesn't actually do anything different. Um, I feel the same way about my money. 
So um, over the past few weeks, as I've been thinking about this sermon, I've, I started a kind of a mental log of how often I'm, I would go and check something related to my finances. Um, and I kind of quit keeping score on the first day because it was, it was embarrassing. Um, and maybe some of you are thinking, uh, you know, you're, you're in the same boat, but it's checking my bank account, checking the stock market, checking, did that transfer go through? Of course that transfer, just checking that the numbers are the same that the last time I looked today. Um, why do I do that? Well, in some way, um, maybe it's that there's something wrong with me. And if there is, you can talk to me about that later if, that's, if you're like me. But in some way, it feels like I have some sense of control when I can see those numbers on a screen, Right? makes me feel a little bit better. Even though it has no control over what's actually happening, I can't make the stock market go up or down. I know some of you here might be the opposite. You go, I don't look at any of that information. I, don't, I wouldn't even know how to log into our bank, you know, to my bank account, our bank account. Um, and it, there's some bliss in not knowing anything at all. Now, oftentimes those two, those two people are married to each other. And so that's always a fun thing as well. Well, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter six, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your treasure might be in your bank account, but it might also be in the likes or interactions you get on social media. It might be your treasure is what you see in the mirror or what you want to see in the mirror. It might be in the success of your kids or those in your family. It might be in having the best looking yard in the neighborhood. It might be in having the newly updated house or kitchen. It might be in something that I wouldn't think is my treasure, but is your treasure. The thing that I, I kind of came back to this week in trying to diagnose this for myself is filling in the blank on this question. If I only had blank then I would feel like I'm on the path to the good life. What would you fill in that blank with today? Locating what you're tempted to make your treasure instead of Jesus is the start of loosening its grip on your heart and soul. Okay, second thing, uh, stamping God's ownership on all that we have. If you came into my office at CPC, you'd see as you walk in that I have bookshelves. And for honestly, for two years, that was about all I had in my office. It looked like I had just moved in that day. Um, I'm not much for decorating, but on those bookshelves, I have a lot of books. And if you were to open one of those books, you would find on the title page, an embossed stamp on the, on the page that says the library of Jonathan P. Hicks. Um, it's a little bit ridiculous, um, but I love it. And and uh, do I stamp all of my books because there are untrustworthy characters working at CBC who I'm worried are going to walk away with my books? I think it keeps them honest, I'll be honest. <laughs> but it's more that it, it feels really satisfying to put that little emboss marked on them. It, it feels really good to say, that's my book. And I get to see that little, that, that crisp stamp on the title page of my book. Now, as silly as that little thing sounds, we all have our ways, whether there's a special embosser for it or whether there's a place to write our name, we all have things that it feels really good to be able to say, that's mine. You know, the feeling of, of yes, I paid for that. I earned that, you know, I bought that. I was able to provide that. We stamp our ownership on many things. 
When I, when I go, uh, when I moved here, I, I decided I needed to clean a few books out or it was decided for me that I needed to pass some books along. And one of the difficult things to do when you've already stamped your name in a book, it feels really hard to give it up. It's, well, this is mine. It, it says it's part of my library. And so for those books that had my embossed stamp that I gave away, I actually had to cut the page. I had to do a little bit of surgery to remove my stamp from that book. It's really hard to give away something that you think is yours. Do you see where this is going? So when it comes time to think about my time and my money, I have a really hard time giving away what I've already stamped as mine. When I look at my calendar and I think all of this time on here is mine, it feels really painful to give away even a little bit of that back to God or back to other people. When I look at my bank account and I think about giving a little bit of that away, it feels really hard when I've already stamped it as mine. I think what Jesus is saying the good life looks like is saying all that you have, time, money, talent, all that you are, it needs to get stamped with God's from the start. It's all God's. That instead of seeing God as a beneficiary for whatever money is left over, Jesus is showing us that the good life is entrusting him with all of it. That we get to be stewards of it, that we get to use it for his purposes, but that we aren't the owners. It's asking with open hands, God, how would you have me use all that you've given me? Final thing. We wanna seek a greater return on investment. The story ends with Peter, who uh, is, Peter's my favorite disciple, um, partly because Peter also says what he's thinking exactly as he's thinking. The filter is not there for Peter. Um, and also, if you've, uh, if you've been around Peter, what I love about him is he just says the thing everybody's thinking, even when you're like, maybe you shouldn't have said that out loud. Um, and so he does that here in this passage. Peter says in effect to Jesus, um, Jesus, look how much we've given up for you. Is there something in it for us, basically? And Jesus could have rebuked Peter. He could have said kind of harshly in reply, gosh, Peter, you've been with me so long. How do you not get it? And instead he kindly replies to affect Peter. Don't you understand? You can't outgive God. There's no sacrifice you make. There's no gift that you can give that will ever exceed what God has given to you that I don't believe that this is a message of health and wealth, but it is a promise that as we let go of our own version of the good life, that we're able to open our hands to receive the true riches that God desires for us to have. So that we as a church community, that we, we give you the opportunity, we call you to give back to God, not because we need to meet our budget. We have a budget, sure. But it's not because of that, it's because that as we do that practice, God has more for your heart and life in store for you. There's a greater return on your investment than we are experiencing now. Because the gospel moves, we can open our hearts and hands to trust God with our money. How might you be sensing God moving you towards generosity with what you have? When we have nothing to bring, Jesus gives us everything. Even as we hold tightly to what is ours, Jesus freely gives us all that is his. Before Jesus calls us to be generous, he loves us without measure. Jesus longs for you and for me to experience the fullness of the good life in him.
So Jesus, we pray that you would help us to see and take hold today of the vision for your good life, that we are tempted so often to cling to what is ours and say mine, that today we might remember that all that is yours, you've said is, is ours. You have blessed us so richly by your grace. Would we live in that today? Amen.